and welcome to the very 167th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games and board games and board games! My name is Tom Brewster, and I am joined today by the one, the only, the very, the bountiful Matthew Lees. There's only one of me available today, and I'm 100% here. You're 100% theirs, the audience. Absolutely. For this next gap of time, I am in your ears exclusively. I am 100% yours, like a little goblin talking to you and only you. So please enjoy this session of me (laughs) and Tom here just for you to talk about board games. Matt is a little goblin in your left ear. I'm a little goblin in your right ear. We've both got a tiny, tiny speaking trumpet and we're projecting words directly into your brain. If we have mixed the podcast like that, then I'm sorry, it will be awful to listen to. Here is a sample of what it would be like. Hello, I'm in this ear. Hi, I'm in this ear, and I'm speaking to you and only you on the right. Did we pick, am I the right hand side? I don't know. I'm in the other one, whichever one we're in. But we're stopping that now because it's really bad. Uh, On this podcast, we're going to talk about three games that we've been playing recently. I am going to talk about Dice Realms, a game about making a little realm with dice. Matt's going to be talking about Atlantis Rising, which is, I think, a game about Atlantis sinking. Sinking, yeah, yeah, it doesn't make it, yeah, no. We'll get to that later. And I'm also going to be talking about QE, a game about printing infinite money. Let's do a podcast! First up on this podcast, we're going to talk about a game called Dice Realms. This is published by Rio Grande Games and isn't technically out yet. Uh, It's still coming soon on their website, but it's the latest game from Tom Lerman, who you may know from Race and Roll for the Galaxy and Res Arcana. Uh, What this is, is a dice building game, a game where the dice that you are rolling throughout can be customized by popping off their little faces and replacing them with better ones. So your rolls get progressively chunkier throughout the game. The very popular Dice Forge, which I've seen people playing all over the place, especially when I'm at conventions. And I've heard is okay, but people seem to love it. So (laughs) what do I know? I've never touched that game but I have touched this game with my hands and I can well, provide then. so many thoughts on it because Matt, it's really weird. Um, <laughs> so how is this whole like dice building theme uh, worked in? Well, your dice are your realm and the faces are the people in it. So the face that produces grain, that's a farmer tilling away at their field. And if you upgrade them, then you might get a plow team and that produces more grain. And if you get the top one, you might get a a combine harvester. There's no combine harvester. It's all very medievally themed. Um, the theme here is basically a really thin pasted on veneer that kind of sits on top of the game and basically plays like not just second, not third, like fourth fiddle to a game that is really just about this very tactile joy of manipulating these die faces and doing it really fast. Like this game, Matt, it's so speedy. It says right. 45 to 90 minutes on the box, but my games of it lasted like 20 minutes. It wow. is so quick because almost everything is completely simultaneous in a way that uh, is 
kind of it shares with Race for the Galaxy, which I've also been playing a little bit of. And I might compare the two a little bit at the end. Um, structurally, these rounds are really quick. You're going to roll your dice with one free reroll, and then you take the bonuses that are shown on those dice. So grain faces get your grain, points faces get your points, money faces get your money, and upgrade faces get you upgrades, which are the most complex part of the game. And you then spend all your money on like reroll tokens or more dice, and then you spend your upgrades on improving the faces. And the way that you do this is you take a little die tool, a little plastic little sticky thing, and you pop out your de-socket those little plastic faces and replace them with better ones. Those are some premium, premium mouth noises there. Just to... Oh, I liked it. I like it. I think Discord's cutting out some of the pop, but it won't be in the final recording, and I'm delighted. It will be plosive for the people at home. Maybe we should have it plosive in stereo again, just to really mess no, with people. No, let's not. No, 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 no. Uh, but if you pop out a green points face, then you can replace it with a better one. So you can get, instead of rolling your one point, you'll now get two points or four points or six points. But for a small cost, you don't have to go up just in that progression of a better and better green face. You can go across. You can sort of change its skill tree. So you can turn your points face for a one little upgrade into an upgrades face. And what this led to was me spending the whole of my second game just tearing out all the basic faces and studying this dice with nothing but upgrades. So one of my dice, I was just rolling, and I would always get an upgrade. So you're, you're basically turning a dice into no longer a dice at yes, that point. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you're turning it into, like, one of my dice had three faces of one thing and three of another, and I realized, like, I've turned my dice into a coin. Yes. Like, fundamentally, yes. I'm, I'm getting a, a binary sort of option here. But what's most interesting about the game, right, is that whereas you always have these uh, pink, green, and brown, and orange faces that are going to always form the sort of basic set of skill trees that are represented on your first dice, each game has a variable setup where you have five sort of weird faces that you're going to be able to pick each round. And these have, like, powers that will kind of shape what game you're going to play. So maybe this game, there's a face that lets you, like, steal grain from other players. Maybe there's a face that lets you get new dice really cheap, which means that the normal way of getting dice is kind avoid maybe there's a face that's just worth tons of points but only if you build all your dice to give you like super mega upgrades hmm. and all of this kind of points to a really nice very speedy dice manipulation game where each round you're settling into this very pacey rhythm and building an engine that is kind of all of your own creation that's going to guarantee you points or it's going to guarantee you money and you're going to be able to manipulate those probabilities into getting you exactly what you want and setting up contingencies for if things go a bit wrong which they can because you have this fate dice that you roll each round and that you know changes how the round's going to play out maybe your grain faces produce less grain maybe you just have to feed all of your dice and if you can't feed them you take some misery tokens which are the most aptly named component in games i ever. am now intrigued if anybody listening to this at home is currently also trying to just work out in their head what grain face looks like and what what money face looks like in my mind grain face is like eating a nice bit of bread <laughs> but money face is a funny one i'm like is it severe is it is it smug what's money face? yeah matt's doing a couple of uh, a, a couple of faces right now that you know the people at home can't see there's it's yeah. sort of got a wide little grin for the money face i think and what was the grain face again i've gone for like a treasure goblin vibe for the money face grain face yep. i'm trying to do it's probably something an over i would call bread face which is the face you pull after you've eaten some delicious bread which is <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah, sated. Interesting. It's, it's very much like I've just eaten, eaten delicious bread and butter. It's usually a face you would only pull whilst in France. 
Mm, okay. But you and know. it comes with a noise that kind of, if you can uh, just to express this in an audio medium, it comes with a noise that you sort of describe as, oh. Yeah, but oh. much deeper. Oh. And, oh, 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 oh. So you've got your grain face, you've got your money face. This sounds fascinating, yep. right? Because the, the idea of being able to have a dice game with faces that you pop off and pop on different ones is really exciting. But obviously, um, being an old cynic man, I'm like, oh, but it's very easily just a pointless gimmick, isn't it? So having this being approached by somebody who, you know, has made Roll for the Galaxy, which I think is a fabulous little dice game, yep. is quite exciting. And the fact that the veneer of setting is is rather thin, again, like people might disagree with me on this, but I felt like with Roll for the Galaxy and Race for the Galaxy, both of those games almost start you off with a theme of having, you know, a couple of cards that gives you a sense of like what sort of space people you might be generally. But then afterwards, that's enough to kind of give you a, a bit of flavor. But then once mm. you're into it, you're basically just building a big mad engine. I think that Race for the Galaxy has a really... I think the theme is really strong in Race for the Galaxy in the sense that the when I played it most recently, my whole thing was creating like a sort of finance empire. I think the kind of cards that you're, that you're into once you've started building your engine lead you down a certain path that does yeah, end up telling right. a story pretty organically. And I think this game is almost completely lacking that. I'm going to go out and say that one of the biggest cons of this game uh, is that it does not feel like you're building a realm. You're building two little dice that have faces on them, and you do not care who they are or what they are. They're just numbers. And the iconography, super dry, and all the art, incredibly dry. And just for a game that's called Dice Realms, this is similar to like your complaint potentially about Beyond the Sun, where you don't own what you've built. What sits in front of you are just two dice and a little board with a collection of victory points next to it. There's no story there. There's no like narrative or anything. And it's a purely mechanical experience. And that's fine. Like that's what this game is, but I don't know. It's it's a shame that it's not a different theme because even a slightly more interesting theme might give those very dry iconography faces a little bit more life to them. But as they are, it's pretty dull. I'm thinking about theme now in terms of fantasy and sci-fi because there's a lot of parallels between fantasy and sci-fi and they often get lumped in together, uh, for example, on Netflix genre categories. But uh, <laughs> really, they are quite different in terms of the c capacity for building stories out of small seeds. Like, I think that you're right that, yeah, uh, you have this initial kind of draft of stuff in games like Race 4 that basically gives you like, okay, you've got some cloning vats and a military ship. It's like that is enough to give you a pretty good sense of who you are straight away. And then by leaning into military and more people, yeah. that allows you to fulfill um, the initial kind of promise of story mm -hmm. as you go through the game. Whereas yeah, in a fantasy setting, it's like the color comes from, I guess, magic mostly, which is so nebulous <laughs> and like, it's just magic. Like the difference between fire magic and water magic, like without a really solid fantasy world building uh to go alongside that it is it's like oh i'm we're the grain people we're the people who like <laughs> yes. grain isn't really it's not really story it's not a good it's not a good foundation for a story it isn't really fantasy so much as it is just medieval it's like right. i collect grain i'm the one who steals the grain i'm the one who marries people what does that mean <laughs> it means i get another dice like it's so dry but like i do think though even though it has like no theme I think that the fact that it has this huge number of setups with this huge amount of replayability and it has a really nice little way that it ends the game where it's as soon as someone needs the 10 points chips or the 10 grain chips or the 10 misery chips, the game just slams shut. Wow. Whenever anyone has too much of anything, 
that's it. And I think that's really like interesting because it means that some games can go incredibly, not not incredibly long. Some games can go long when it's just a race for those for those points. Also, you get points for your dice uh, that you upgrade at the end of the game. Some games can go long if no one even has a way of generating points each turn. But mm. some games can be really short if someone plows their engine into the ground and collects all the misery in the game and then ends it because they're just having a bad time and why do you want to continue? <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of a nice organic way of getting to the end. And also there's other pros. Like it's so easy to set up. It's so quick to play. We played like three times in a row. However, Matt, this lovely, breezy, nice, fun dice game has a problem, which is that number one, it is nothing but plastic. But number two, more importantly, it has an MSRP of $120. It is bonkers sponsive <laughs> I, I feel like my eyes have not my eyes have not been this fully open since march of 2021 <laughs> after a sleepy winter i'm now i'm now aware that I'm, i've got lots of white around the colorful bit in the middle of my eye um that is yeah that's an alarming price it is an alarming price and like i i'm getting that like this is something that is so unique that it sort of has to cost this much like the very yes. specific kind of components involved means that it's going to be an expensive game but I just don't know if it's a good value proposition because it is a it's gimmicky, it's a novelty, it's weird and it's unique. It's something that you need to get a lot of games out of, a lot of 20 minute, very fast paced games. And maybe it's quick enough that it'll suit people who just have it out on their table just to dip into now and again. But for me, I would rather just play something like Race for the Galaxy or Roll for the Galaxy. With the tiny little dice that you could you could probably eat. Don't eat them. But you know what I mean? Don't it's 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 a small box, relatively. It's, you know, yeah. it's a condensed thing with a with a big experience. I got race and roll for the galaxy very recently, uh, and I'm adoring both of them. They're both fantastic, fantastic games. You can fit race for the galaxy in the roll for the galaxy box and just yes. always have it ready to go and like that's the one i played both of these games very close to each other and race for the galaxy is the one that i'm reaching to play again and it's like it's so cheap it's so expandable it's so thematically more interesting and has the same level of these big crunchy decisions sure it doesn't have that gimmick mm. but if that gimmick is going to cost you like a hundred pounds it's probably not worth it. You know, it's funny with stuff like this, you can see how people end up going down the routes that they do go down to ending up creating these uh, special dice that have Wi-Fi and glow and roll themselves <laughs> around the table, right? Because it's like, I look at this and I think about this and I think as a component, what a delightful thing, like having mm. the modular dice that you can change the faces of. And the thing that that leads me to think is, well surely the way to get around this is to have like to invent the dice with some easier generic way of swapping out bits and then using them in a variety of different games and yeah. having, like, you buy these dice and then of course i can see how you end up if you're going to go down that route then you end up going too far you know there's so much scope for really interesting stuff within that idea of what happens if you hack a dice and have a, a game yes. where you can actually modify a dice but it feels like yep. there's no room for that to be explored without us landing into a mire of just excessively expensive, potentially gimmicky things. Right, exactly. And there, there's something that's nice about the fact that Dice Realms does have, uh, within the box, it has so many different kinds of faces and you can pull what faces you use out of a bag randomly. So you have this potentially infinite number of setups for like really bizarre interactions between the faces and really strange interactions. But ultimately what you're paying for for this $120 game is 
that gimmick, that tactile experience of popping out a die face. And it's a lovely experience. Like, yeah. it's so nice that this is a multiplayer solitaire game, effectively. You know, people are sat around a table, you're doing the same thing. Or actually, it might not be, depending on how many attack faces uh, are, in the, are in the game. But the games that we played were very gentle and everyone doing their own thing. And there's something so nice about the end of the round being everyone just popping out these little faces, doing their own little craft project almost, mm. and then starting to roll again and getting more stuff. But as it stands, I just don't think this is something that I'm going to pull off the shelf enough to justify that price. It's so cool to show people, but goodness. Much like Dice Forge, it may just be a game you see people playing at conventions for years to come. In that it's right. kind of too, it's too much to want to have it, but you want to try it. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's got to be a middle ground. How can we, who can we call on? We need to reunite the Parker brothers. Uh, <laughs> get the gang back together and they're going to make a whole new kind of dice. They're going to, I was about to say they're going to make triangular dice. They already exist. Imagine uh, a, a, a worldwide games publisher union where they come together to make some universal components. So they right. could be like, right, have the universal component pack for this next, <laughs> for the year. And then everyone makes games that uses those, right? There's something that uses there, like right? wooden cube, wooden cube 2.0 wooden disc remastered now we're going to talk about atlantis rising by galen siskel and brent dickman now this is the second edition of a game it's kind of a comeback of a, a popular cooperative game of yesteryear and it's been published by elf creek in a delightfully delicious package now this came out a little while ago it's been sitting on my shelf for, for some time why is that you know, a big thing with board games is about finding the vibe. You know, you have something you're like, oh, I want to check that out. I want to play that. But you've got you to find the right... There's no point forcing the vibe, right? And I felt like a cooperative game of trying to stop Atlantis from sinking, which is odd mm. for a game called Atlantis Rising. It's really not rising. It's sinking quite fast. <laughs> um, and I thought, yep, keen to give that a go, but I had to find the right time. And it turned out the, fight, the right time for me was Christmas, where I played a bunch of it with my brother. So I've only played this game mm -hmm. two-player, and I think that some of the stuff I wasn't too keen on was very specifically related to the two-player version of it, and I'm interested to see how it okay. plays with more, particularly as it plays with up to seven people, which is frankly... My goodness. A, right, right? My goodness. Yeah. Because this is a game in the vein of Pandemic, etc., where you are taking it turns to do things, but you're all working together to try and escape from Atlantis. There is also a game called Escape from Atlantis, I believe, which is probably why it's called Atlantis Rising and not something more <laughs> accurate. Let's be real. Atlantis sinking does sound bad. <laughs> it's depressing, right? <laughs> Can you get out before it sink? <laughs> before it slides into the ocean. Although, wait, hold on. Isn't it? Wait, hold on. Atlantis is the city that's under the sea, isn't it? No. So it has risen and now it's going back down again? I mean, maybe. I think the thing about Atlantis that's tough to, to pin down is the fact that it's fictional, probably. So getting into specifics about where it was, what happened. I think but the idea tends to be that it was an island and it sank. It was like the, the Atlanteans okay. were like this advanced civilization, but they flew too close to the sun, but on an island and did something that caused okay. it all to... It's probably like an old story related to like... <laughs> technology's bad you know like don't yeah. get too big for it's your about, boots okay okay it's it's a hubris it's a classic hubris of man tale i think so. set in the ocean okay okay i think it's generic generic wet hubris is the 
is the kind of like genre I'd put Atlantis into okay. the concept. But effectively, the way that the game works is you've got to get out of Atlantis because heck, <laughs> it's sinking. And the the kind of board for this is just lots of little bits of cardboard stuck together to form this big, impressive star, a six-pronged star island uh, with all these mm-hmm. different peninsulas uh, zipping out towards the sea. And then basically having to quickly rinse the island of as many resources and things as you possibly can before it becomes, frankly, too wet to inhabit. The way it works is fairly simple. Um, it's not a complicated game. You basically have little worker people that you're going to be placing on different spaces along this island, and then those spaces are going to let you do things. Now, the things are a mixture of reliable and unreliable. So you have like half the island is like reliable stuff of being like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to go over here to the, the the libraries and I'm going to get to draw a couple of cards and maybe keep one of them, maybe keep two. Um, or I'm going to go over here and convert this little iron ore into some cool bars of, of fantasy metal um, that's going to help me build the contraptions we need to in order to get off this flipping wet rock. Because effectively in the middle of the board, you've got this big old stargate teleporter that you're trying to build so you can zap out of there before the whole place goes underwater oh okay where they go i don't know nobody knows <laughs> atlantis 2 <laughs> yeah stay atlantis tuned for the Googling. sequel uh yeah i, I don't know like they're just, they're just getting out of there now okay the way you do this is you need to build a whole bunch of technological gubbins. And there's a whole separate board that you very pleasingly, I might add, slot in these bits of technology that you've built uh, into this big wheeler tech. And then once you've filled up the wheeler tech with all these different devices, you can then collectively build the the teleporter bit that slots into the middle, which is like, we've won the game. Now we've finished the wheeler tech. Now we can GTF. It basically is a resource game of going around collecting resources and then going to this space where you can build stuff. The nice thing about this game, I'll say off the bat, is that it does have a whole bunch of swipping and swapping stuff out so that every game you play is going to be slightly different. There's a whole bunch of different characters Mm. you can play as that have different abilities. And there's a whole bunch of different tech things that you can have that you have to build some of which are just straight up a lot harder to build than others so you can kind of uh, tone the difficulty of the game based on that but also when you unlock these things they provide immediate powers or sometimes new worker placement slots that give you abilities you can use throughout the game so there is a degree of like having powers back and forth of being like maybe we should build this but then you think well no we don't want to build this too early because it gives us a bonus that isn't that useful yet like maybe you can use something to push back the water out a bit in a way that you don't want to do that straight away, right? Because the water's not in yet. Mm. But at the same time, you have to build all these things and there's only a limited number of things you can build each round, right? You can only build maybe two things every turn. So if you leave all the building till too late in the game, bad news, everywhere's too wet, you're not going to make it. There's a weird rush, right, of having to just build stuff as quickly as you can whilst also trying to make savvy decisions and not be reckless. And here's the bad news. All of these different routes that you can go to out of main Atlantis into these six different sectors that all do different things, the bits on the very edge of the island are way more useful than the bits on the inside. So if you go right to the tip of the peninsula, then wow, great news. 
you can get loads of good resources there. Or for many of the resource collecting areas, you have to roll dice to see if you get any resources. Oh, I and can see this on the board. Yes. So it means that like it's either like, hey, it's really easy to get some ore from here. Or in the case of tougher to get resources like uh, crystals, it's, it's like, you know, you're going to get them on a roll of a three or higher versus, you know, you need to roll a six on the very inside track. Gotcha. But you all place all of your people on the board and then you draw, as we call them in Pandemic or other cooperative games, the bad cards, which <laughs> means something bad happens. And if an area is unprotected from you know using your magical whims to, to block basically some flooding and an area gets flooded and you had people on it, then those people, they don't die, but they just they don't get to do that action. They get sent home and you don't get to roll the dice. They get sent home soggy. They get sent home soggy and embarrassed. Yeah, they've got to spend ages getting all the water out of their boots and then Atlantis has just sunk because you didn't put a magical spell on their peninsulas. Exactly. And it's 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 quite peppy, this game, I'd say. It's okay. fast. We were playing it with two, which obviously means the rounds were quite quick. Um, the complication came in with two and the fact that it's not really a two-player game. I think you can play sure. it with one, and there's probably... You can. You can play it with one. You can. Great. Um, but with two, it kind of has a slight fudge of how to do this, and the fact that what it does is it says, well, hey, both of you pick a character with that ability, and then you have the stack of player boards goes to the side, and each round you take the top two and you basically choose one of them, and you take it in turns to have like an extra leader character that can use that ability this round, which sure. works, but just... It's just slightly sludgy in the fact that, A, mm. you don't have the specific restriction of, well, I can only do this, you can only do this. But also it means you're just constantly having to kind of like cycle in and out this temporary thing you can do in a way that just slows things down a touch. And, you know, it's it's reminding me of playing Cosmic Encounter sometimes where you just have, you know, you might just get an ability that lets you to change your alien race like every time anything happens and you think, you know what, I'm a bit too tired for this today. Can we just not do that? Like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to have to be reading new rules every two minutes. It's not that much because you do end up cycling through the stack quite quickly. And um, But yeah, it, it feels like a, a fudge. But, and I've got to say this, I can't say this loudly enough, the component that you use for this is the most beautiful, delightful board game component I've ever seen in my life. It oh, is, what is it? It's called the hologram. Okay. And all it is is a transparent plastic meeple that clearly has yep. some sort of film on either side of it that gives the the piece a, a, a palescenty rainbowy vibe Ooh. i might i might next time i see i might just bring it round just so you can have a look at it just so you can behold <laughs> the glory because it's just such a lovely piece yeah. so okay and it's the highlight of the game by the well oh i've just seen it oh that's very nice it's lovely right it's lovely it's not the highlight of the game it's just you only use it when you're playing in a two-player game and it's just a bit of a shame because you sure. feel like okay the two-player game is not quite I imagine it's not as good as it would be with three or four. You reckon you'd want to play it with more players at a baseline. And then do you, but then even then I'm sensing Matt, that you're not like overwhelmed with this game being like incredibly exciting. It sounds very solid. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I think what interests me about it is the fact that it plays up to seven. And the question that leaps into my mind is, would that work? Like, would that be fun? <laughs> and I don't know. Right. It's, it's interesting. Because you have these different abilities on the different characters, there's a lot of, well, I can do this, it'll be useful for me to go here, etc. But but it's 
fundamentally a lot of the game is is rolling dice and you know mm-hmm. it's i'm gonna roll these dice and i need to get these numbers and there's all sorts of things you can do to modify that of being like make it easier to roll those dice make it so you can re-roll the dice but then even on the spaces where it's like this is definitely going to happen for example getting to draw cards what cards you draw just is such a huge you know if you keep drawing cards that are are bad then that's no good but also there's just a ton of luck involved in this game, right? In the fact that actually, sure. I feel like it fits a strange space in the kind of modern oeuvre of, of uh, co-op gamers. So it's, it's not actually very complicated, but there's just enough complexity in terms of number of currencies, um, number of different decks, number of things you have to do, number of things you have to... That, that it would be off-putting, I think, to people who don't really play many games. But then... Beyond that, so much of everything is very light and luck-based that I just feel like there's an inconsistency there, right? I tend to find if a game is going to be completely like, we're just going to be rolling dice and hoping and we're going to have a strategy, but if we flip a card over, everything could go completely out the window straight away, right? You can make a perfectly good plan and have a couple of cards that just chucks everything into the bin immediately in a way that you can't really foresee because there's enough potential things that could happen that it's not as simple as, well this place is dangerous. We had something where everyone just ran like in to, away from the water in a way that was just unexpected. And you just think that changes everything so fundamentally so quickly that right, it's right. hard to keep that in mind as a possibility when there's so many other possibilities that could pop up. Well, it sounds like then if you did play it with more players, because one of the problems that I have with co-op games that feature a lot of players is that you're sort of diluting the decision space between all the people around the table. And then communication becomes more of a factor because you have to sort of be able to... And that's sort of a frustration for me, is that when there's so much communication happening, you can't possibly hold on to all of it, and then the strategic layer of the game kind of crumbles away. Whereas when you have very few people playing a game, you sort of know exactly what the other player is doing. At every point, you can sort of walk in step with each other. The fact that there's so much randomness in this game, or there's more random in this game, sounds like it would be suited to that higher player count because it's more chaotic and more like, if a bit of information slips through the cracks, maybe it doesn't matter because you were kind of doomed in the first place. It's it's possible, and I think that's why it's it's quite interesting. It's quite exciting and quite thematic, but I just, for me, I don't quite see where it fits into my own little Venn diagram of... Is it like light? Is it middleweight? Who's it for? Is it like, you know, seven people? Is it a party game? And for me, the answer is like, no. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. But as I said, if it slips off your radar and you love cooperative challenges, um, then it's definitely worth a look. Uh, But for me, it's like, I don't quite know where it goes in my life. And so here it is on a podcast. So last up on this podcast, I want to talk about a game called QE, which stands for Quantitative Easing. Uh, This is published by Board Game Tables, and it's designed by Gavin Birnbaum. And it pictures, Matt, a terrifying post-apocalypse where huge, too-big-to-fail companies need to be bailed out by governments. (laughs) Imagine the horror. Uh, that would never stand, <laughs> would it? People wouldn't stand would for never. that. There would be people who would be angry. There'd be riots in the streets. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, because you represent an entire country in this game, you own the right to print money. So this is an auction game where you have unlimited money. 
Uh, you'll use this money to bid on companies that come up, with each company acquired increasing your score at the end of the game. But, right, the twist here is yes, that whilst an everyone... There's could... an issue with infinitely <laughs> printing money, do you think? There's, there's a little problem. What is it? Um, whilst everyone could just bid billions every single turn of every single company, the player who spends the most by the end of the game just completely loses. They are removed from the game. They do not score any points. Gone. Uh, which is huge. But practically, how does it work? Uh, you have this fiendish little auction system that uh, starts off every round where the auctioneer writes their bid on a little player board and shows it to everyone round the table. And then, after seeing that initial bid, everyone secretly writes their bid and passes it to the auctioneer face down. The auctioneer then looks at all of the bids secretly and then awards the company to the player who bid the most, writing their bid on the underside of the company tile being bid on, so the player in question remembers how much they spent, but crucially so that no one knows how much the company was actually bought for. Um, but what gets created here, right, is this fascinating puzzle, where if someone else wins the bid, you know how much the auctioneer bid, and you know how much you bid, so you might be able to work out roughly how much they bid, or you could just know, but the only piece of information you have is that it was over those amounts. Yes. So everyone knows that everyone's bidding more than them, which creates this frenzy where organically the prices start rising and rising and rising. So you know someone spent at least 100 on that, so I can spend 150. And then someone knows that you probably spent 150, so they bid 250. And you know that like players are going to keep bidding towards the end of the game, so the price just creeps up and up and up and up until a game that started dealing in tens is now dealing in thousands. <laughs> it's very, very funny. Yeah. Um, and in one of the games we played, <laughs> someone just started the bidding at 100,000. And everyone was like, what? Like, 100,000? Surely everyone else is just going to bid like ones and twos, and then we know that player has lost. But no, someone then just immediately decided to then bid 150,000, assuming the other player would then follow them in step, as they did for the whole game, which ended up in millions by the end. Yeah, because I suppose it doesn't... I mean, it's it's interesting to have a game about economies and money where the money doesn't exist. I'm assuming you're not having coins <laughs> and bits of paper, right? You just write no, a no, number. No. Write a number on a yeah. thing, that's money. Which is kind of yeah. wonderful of being like... as a. <laughs> it's very few games about economies that actually do convey the idea that money doesn't really exist. Yep, and, it's, and it becomes... It's, you have so much money. Because you have infinite money, you just don't care. It just becomes like, I'll throw out a number. Make the number bigger. Why not? <laughs> Who cares? It just simulates the way that these real businesses must operate when they get to these silly amounts of money. It's like, oh, well, just chuck another million in there. What could, what could go wrong? Tactically right, you're just trying to remember how much everyone has spent so you can pitch your bid sort of perfectly. Um, and the fact that you're writing these bids on these blank checks which you pass to the auctioneer... Okay, all right. There's a little twist in this game, which is that if you bid zero on a round, you get two points, which is nice. You just get a little bonus little points. Endgame scores are like 30 or something, so it's good to just chuck a couple points here and there. But my favorite part of the game is that when the auctioneer writes a silly number, a ridiculous number on the tile to start the bid, you put zero on yours and then write them a little message just to show that you don't approve. <laughs> There's just something nice about having that... <laughs> Something joyous about having that blank canvas in front of you every round to not only write a daft number on, but also just send a little message if you decided it. So that every round the auctioneer looks at those cards and just goes, because they've seen that you've written yeah. something very silly. Yeah, which in a way, like, 
it's funny. There's a, there becomes a, a dangerous metagame within that of if you see a, an auctioneer sniggering, then it means they know... You know that somebody's bid zero, probably, right? Because, yeah. although maybe not, maybe someone's just put a ridiculously high number. It's Right. But I love stuff like that. Like, it was funny when we were uh, collaborating on the Rats game thing. It was like a lot of that, trying to, trying to put in that stuff of being like, how can you actually... Ma- people can do this fun stuff on the side if they want, but how can yeah. you integrate that in a way that encourages people to do it? Um, do, yeah. Encourages people to do something outside of the game that you know they will enjoy. So that's really fun. I like that, of being able to just... And I think it's really interesting to have... Like I, I'm, I'd be fascinated to see the whole shape of this because it's like it's a, it's an interesting, it's interesting to see games trying to actually consider and think about economies in interesting ways. Although part of me is like it's quite a it's quite a I'm not sure I agree with the. <laughs> it's like having read up a bunch about economics. It's like well actually it's you can spend an awful lot of government money. It's about what you spend it on. But if you're spending it just yeah. on companies and and enriching yourself, then absolutely that is. A road to ruin. It's just a bunch of companies. You just, you just, you're buying out companies. And so basically the way that the game ends, the end of the game, why you're bidding on these companies is that the person who spends the most loses. The player who spends the least gets a few extra points. And then in between, you work out uh, each company is worth a flat rate of points, but then you get points for like having a diverse portfolio or going really far into one industry. And it all just trickles down into points. Whoever has the most points wins. Um, the thing that I... I love this game and I've shown it to multiple people and I've had a really, really good time with it both times, but it is a fabulous novelty and I'm keeping it to show it to people and I am keeping it because it's so funny to show to people, but I don't know if it has longevity purely because the puzzle of what to actually acquire with that unlimited money is very straightforward. It's a fabulous gimmick. But I think about other really great auction games. I think about the way that what you're bidding on in those games is intrinsically very exciting. And the auction then becomes a little juicy layer on top. In this, what you're bidding on is very plain, very straightforward. It has a sort of ceiling to it. You know exactly what is good for you and you know exactly what isn't good for you. So the first game is this wonderful exploration because you don't know what's in that stack of tiles, what might come up. But then once you know the outline, there are a certain number of this tile, a certain number of this tile, a certain number of this tile, it becomes quite straightforward what Mm -hmm. to actually bid. And there's this magic the first time when everyone, the very first round of the very first game is hilarious because everyone sits there and and you go, right, off we go. And everyone sits and then just starts laughing because they've no idea yeah, what to yeah. write on their on their chat. Well, I think that's why it's really um, fun because it's 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 what you're saying makes perfect sense because I'm just sitting here thinking, well, it's it's a simulation of chaos, and in a way, it's really fun because that's what these things are. Like you know, when 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 the world is suddenly going ah and having all these countries just suddenly printing money and trying to fix things, it is chaos, and they don't really know yep. what they're doing, and and often they're <laughs> making terrible decisions, and we just find out later by fortune or luck whether or not they got it right so it is a delightful thing but you can't keep doing that right because if you if you keep playing it again and again and resetting it then it but the chaos fades you start to actually have a sense of like what things are actually worth but having a game that you can you're so right having a game that you can put in front of someone and then say and then you just have to choose what you want to bid on it and having people who don't play games very often going (laughs) well you know but where are the coins where are the where's the notes where's the thing and you just go oh no no just write a number they're like but what kind of number should i write like and it's like I don't know. What you could, whatever you want is it's just such <laughs> wild chaos that um yep. Yeah, like amazing. But it's one of those things I can see being a game that like you'd own and play but you probably quite quickly get into the point of being like I'm not even going to play this. I'm just going to teach it and then you're yes. going to play it. Yeah. Because yep. you don't want to like 
You don't want your knowledge to muddy any of that beautiful chaos. Um. Yes, and you you never want to remove the possibility that exists in every game that I've every first game I've played of it so far, which is that one player will undoubtedly miss out. They'll be a little bit cautious, and they'll miss out on like four or five companies, and be like, and they'll get increasingly agitated that they don't own anything, and then they'll break and write a ludicrous number, and then be as soon as they get the company, which they don't even want, they're just like, why did I do this? What have yeah. I done? I've ruined myself. Uh, and that doesn't exist once you know the actual like strategy of the game. Once you've played it a few no, times, no. then it becomes then it just becomes a game where you just bid sensible amounts of money. Um, but for the first few games, when everyone bids whatever they want, it's hilarious. It's a it's a party trick of the game, uh, and it's and I'm going to keep it. And I do, and yeah, I'm going to watch people play. I it. do love those games where you can just you can either it's a box of chaos or it's like an unfolding flower skull. Yeah, as a game we've talked about many times over the year, but it's always very close to my heart and very close to the top of my brain. And the fact that that's a game, it's less of a chaos thing, but it's just it unfolds. I don't often play it really anymore. Or when I do, I'm not really playing. I'm kind of playing yeah. as if I'm like a kind of easy AI in a video game. I'm not really <laughs> thinking about it. I'm doing things in an odd way. But I just love to watch that moment of the first time somebody realizes that you can purposefully put down a card that's going to sting other people. And then they think, oh, but yep. yours are going to be safe. And then they touch it and they're like, what? And then everybody for the next round like everyone's putting down skulls constantly everyone's trying to sting each other and as soon as people realize that you can use the teeth that you're given your hand of four cards in a way that's aggressive rather than accidental the shape each game takes is just always the same it's like you teach new people and they you can read how they're going to play so easily but that little journey for each person is just beautiful and it's so nice to just be like okay i'm going to take you on a little ride now and, uh, and you're going to have a great time. Uh, it's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. So that's QE, uh, a weird, weird auction game from Board Game Tables. Uh, well worth a little play if you find it out in the wild. And I think that's the end of this podcast. It is. We made it to the end. We talked about three games and we wouldn't necessarily recommend you just leap out and buy any of them. But, you know, we had thoughts about them. We had a little rambly chat. We, we were in your ears for some time in your ears exclusively better than that in your oh (laughs) yes in your ears exclusively dave so someone called dave is listening i only have ears for you beauty that was wow that was astounding it's like my ears were in the room thank you very much for listening we will be back next week with another podcast all about games board games and the people who love board games thank you so much for listening and uh, yeah we will see you next time for more podcasts thank you Tom thank you me thank you Tom thank you thank you me yeah Bye. bye